Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Tom Digby, author of Love and War, How Militarism Shapes Sexuality and Romance. The book, Love and War, provides a new way to view heterosexual love, as well as the impact of misogyny in the everyday lives of men and women. Tom's work has been widely shared in numerous public presentations about the intersections of masculinity, militarism, love, sexuality, and feminism. Tom Digby is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Springfield College and has served as U.S. Advisory Editor of the journal Men and Masculinities since it was founded by Michael Kimmel in 1998. His previous book was Men Doing Feminism, published by Rutledge Press. Tom's earlier publications were on Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, Kant, and ethical theory, but for the past 30 years he has written, lectured, and taught primarily about gender topics. Tom will speak with us today about the concepts in his book, including heterosexual love, the construction of gender in our society, the interplay of gender and militarism and its role in shaping our understanding of masculinity, sexuality, romantic love, misogyny, and even war itself. We will also discuss the role of the 2016 election in influencing identity and cultural institutions and cultural norms, and in influencing our discourse on gender and masculinity. So welcome, Tom. Oh, hi, Terry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining our show today. So let's get started. Your writing and work has centered around how masculinity and misogyny and the intersections of those two corrupt love, sex, and life in general. How did you become interested in this topic? Well, there are a number of long stories, and I'll try to stay with a shorter story. When I was in graduate school, I was finishing up my PhD in 1982, and my dissertation advisor, the late Phyllis Kenovan, uh, had just written her first feminist theory article. And it was not yet printed. It was in draft form, and she gave it to me to read. And it coincidentally was at a time when my very long marriage was uh, coming to an end, and uh, which was a very you know uh, disconcerting thing. That was part of the context in which she gave it to me to read. And when I read it, it just, well, it blew my mind, really. It was like it just opened up a whole new way of thinking about everything, really, uh, seeing the, the way that gender affects our lives. And I never turned back. I mean, I, I was like, I had been a political feminist before that, but that introduced me to feminist theory. And so the origins of my interest in feminism, or at least in feminist theory, had a lot to do with love and what could go wrong in love and that sort of thing. Because I immediately realized when I read her paper all the mistakes I'd made as a, as a person and, and, and that relationship. That's part of the story. And then much later, I decided to teach a course on philosophy of love uh, just because I knew that philosophers had written about a lot about love, but I'd never really studied it. And it looked like I was entering a new relationship, and I thought... Well, you know, I want to make sure I, you know, understand what's going on here as best I I can. And so I started teaching a course uh, on philosophy of love. And I've been teaching feminist theory courses for a long time. So, of course, I brought this emphasis on feminism to that course. 
And then in 2001, to my great dismay, our country set off on a path to war, a completely unnecessary, two completely unnecessary wars, it seemed to me, as a someone for whom the Vietnam War had been hugely important in my life. I was very dismayed, but but I very quickly realized that the intersections of love and war were really profound, actually, philosophically. And so that's what led ultimately to um, to my book, uh, Love and War. And I'm curious, um, you said you had, a, you had studied feminist studies before. What is it about feminist philosophy or its analytical methodologies that's been useful for you in coming to understand the world as we know it and develop a cultural consciousness? Or as you say, break free of our society's cultural programming? Uh, well, that's a big question, which any philosopher should be able to deal with any big question, of course. I guess, you know, what I realized early on when I first started studying feminist theory you know, in 1982, that men and women really do, for the most part, as a general pattern, view even the most fundamental philosophical topics like truth and reality and issues in ethics and so on uh, in, in different ways. And it took me a while to realize that that was the result of a culture. It had nothing to do with biology. So I gradually began to set about understanding culture, the role that culture plays in our lives with regard to gender. And eventually I, I came upon the insight that it was really very much like computer programming, except a lot sloppier, uh, that that we were, by our culture, and through, through the mass media, through uh, relations with parents, parenting is obviously a way that culture is transmitted and, and programmed into people, through entertainment, and just in so many ways, through basically every, every source and, and uh, transmitter of culture has an impact on how we, we think about so many things. And whether you're a man or a woman makes a huge difference in what your culture is trying to program into you. And, and it seemed to me this was really important because it, it basically helps us understand that culture is something that is not something static and something that's sort of distant from us, but rather culture is something that's done to us as we, as we grow up and throughout our lives, actually. We're never free from what I call cultural programming. So I set about, you know, to describe this cultural programming and explain how it works. So my work is primarily descriptive and explanatory as opposed to argumentative, which that argumentative approach that most philosophers take in, in the U.S. to me is rooted in the adversarialism of, of militarism, uh, which is not just, it's not just that it's a problem for me from some sort of ideological perspective, an anti-war perspective or something like that, but rather it's significant because I think it really makes it harder to do good and useful uh, philosophical work by approaching it in this adversarial way. Mm -hmm. So what you've just described is a concept in sociology, social constructionism, where all identity right. is constructed or created right. rather than discovered or unveiled. Um, and this goes not just for gender, but also for race, sexual orientation, et cetera. So you referenced some of it already, but can you go into a little more detail as it is referenced in your book? How does our society, I guess American society in particular, construct masculinity and femininity? And how does that manifest itself in our romantic relationships, in our heterosexual romantic relationships in particular? Well, what I focus on in the book is 
more one side of that than the other side. Uh, a lot has been written about how women's lives have been... The, the term cultural programming is not, uh, so far as I know, used ordinarily in, in, in feminist philosophy, but, but a lot's been written about how culture is imposed upon uh, women's lives. In particular, the book Femininity and Domination by Sandra Barkey, the late Sandra Barkey, who was one of my handful of dearest friends uh, for decades. For that part of it, I recommend her book. What I try to focus on is how the lives of boys are structured through this cultural programming. And it really involves, it really focuses on, because we live in a militaristic culture, it focuses on uh, making those boys into, in effect, warriors. Not necessarily actual warriors, but having the, the mentality, the outlook on life, the attitudes, the dispositions, and so on, of warriors. And that fundamentally involves, more than anything else, cultivating in them the ability to manage the capacity to care about the suffering of others and of themselves. We call that emotional toughness sometimes, or just toughness, that boys are tough, men are tough, and so on. Uh, but usually that involves that managing the capacity to care about others and of oneself uh, simultaneously. So we do that, for example, with boys by uh, telling them that boys don't cry. And we know the boys do cry, actually. <laughs> Unaffected by cultural programming, boys would uh, probably cry just as much as girls. There's no reason to think they wouldn't. Uh, and a lot of boys who are brought up in ways that are relatively, relatively at least, free of that traditional cultural programming of masculinity do cry more openly and more freely and so on. There are more aspects to it, of course. I mean, part of cultural militarism is to bring boys up to, to view life in an adversarial mode so that other people are their enemies to one extent or another. And even boys' friendships with other boys can be affected by this, so that the boys feel intensely competitive with each other, even though they're close friends, right? They feel competitive with each other, and they want to uh, constantly defeat each other in sports or uh, whatever it is. So that adversarialism certainly affects boys. And we also culturally program them to be aggressive and violent. And again, it varies to what extent uh, this works with a particular boy. But when you do this through the way we parent, the way we, uh, the movies their kids see and the social, uh, various other mass media presences in their lives, then of course a certain number of them are going to wind up actually being violent in life. Some of them will do that in controlled and what we view, what society generally views as beneficial ways, like serving in the military, serving as uh, police officers, and so on. But others do it um, in other ways, like mass murder. So in other words, when we as a society are constructing masculinity, we are building the identity of a warrior male. And so this is essentially how misogyny is constructed. Is that correct? You were you were referencing, uh, you know, violence and and not crying, not being in touch with one's emotion. Yeah, the misogyny aspect is a crucial part of the cultural programming of boys. They are are, are first of all taught that there is a gender binary. That's a crucial part of the misogyny uh, training of boys. A gender binary in which uh, every person is either male or female. 
There's no blurring of the boundary. There's no, there's no ambiguity, no confusion. Everybody is unequivocally male or female. Now, we know from uh, studies of biology and the work of people like Cordelia Fine that this is just not true. It's, it's just false. So that gender binary is a myth. But it's a myth that most people in our society buy into. And I found even academics, oddly enough, mostly buy into this, uh, this gender binary. It's quite striking sometimes. Even biologists, for example, who should know better, are ab- absolutely committed to this idea and, and think that they understand you know, the science behind it and that sort of thing. But in any case, so, so it starts with that gender binary. You're either male or female. And then for boys, it's really, really important that they stay on the male side of that binary. And so boys are taught when they're playing sports not to play like a girl, not to throw like a girl, etc. So boys grow up with the idea that the worst thing that could possibly happen to them is to be thrown over to the other side of the gender binary, to th- be thrown over that fence or to engage in behavior that might, uh, such that they might be misperceived as belonging to some extent, whatever it is, to any extent, on the other side of that uh, gender binary. So, you know, boys learn that uh, referring to another boy as a girl, a lady, a bitch, a, uh, a little bitch, uh, uh, a wuss, a pussy, things like that, these, these are incredibly powerful taunts. And these taunts then are used to to reinforce boys' commitment to those aspects of uh, the warrior mentality that I mentioned before, that toughness, being able to manage the capacity to care about the suffering of others so that you can impose great cruelty upon them and brutality, uh, hurt them really bad, and so on. And also uh, that you're tough toward yourself so that you can endure pain and suffering, whether it be physical or uh, emotional suffering, that you, you can endure that, that you can play through the game, the game understood to be a, a boy's game, right, that uh, involves pain and suffering and inflicting pain and suffering on the other team and uh, enduring it yourself. So that's, that's part of uh, how boys are, are, are trained to be warriors. All the qualities that are needed for a warrior, that emotional toughness, the aggressiveness, the willingness to be violent and to use violence, and so on, the tendency to readily view people who could be identified as, as members of another group, uh, as enemies, and so on. Obviously, this has a lot to do with how we understand things like race in our society. So how do these concepts come together in heterosexual relationships? How are gender and masculinity as performed or performative acts manifest themselves when heterosexual men and women are engaged in the dance of courtship? Well, if you have a boy who's been socialized to, in all of these ways that I've described, just that alone is setting him up for failure in any relationship, whether it be relationships with women or relationships with uh, other boys or men. He's being set up for failure by this uh, masculinity training. So that's part of it, and that's a big part of it. It's probably the major part of it. But then on the other hand, in a militaristic society, women tend to be culturally programmed to be maternal, to be nurturing, to be caring, to be self-sacrificing, in most respects, to be the opposite of a warrior. So instead of 
being able to manage the capacity to, uh, to care about the suffering of others and of themselves, women are, are culturally programmed to amplify this capacity to care about the suffering of others and of themselves. So when you bring these you know, two people with this different cultural programming together in a relationship, again, the recipe is for failure, really, because you've got one person who's subordinating herself and erasing herself, and you have someone else who has all the qualities that are needed to be dominant. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote about this. He said that uh, women, tend, women and men tend to view love differently. Women tend to view love as an opportunity to completely uh, give themselves to another person, to become subsumed in their love for another person, to become devoted to that person, and so on. And he says men are culturally programmed to actually to expect that kind of love from women, to expect them to subordinate themselves, to be nurturing and caring and so on toward them and toward their children. Nietzsche doesn't talk about the children part, but, uh, but that's part of it, of course. And Nietzsche provides one of the, uh, you know, the great insights in my book, actually, that your question bears upon, that when you have these two different sets of cultural programs coming together in a relationship, it's a recipe for antagonism between a man and a woman. The man wants to be dominant, expects to be dominant. He expects a woman to be subordinate. And the woman, according to the traditional cultural programming, wants a man who's dominant. She wants a take-charge kind of guy, so to speak, right? And, and she's turned on when he acts dominant in the world and, and, and shows that he's in control of situations and that sort of thing. And that means basically you have two people who are coming together as if they were, they were enemies, enemies that are with an unbalanced set of, of qualities, the things that they bring to the relationship. So the term battle of the sexes seems to fit perfectly. You know, it seems to me that Nietzsche really explains this idea of battle of the sexes right there in that aphorism that uh, I'm referring to. So that to me... When I read that passage from Nietzsche, I realized, oh my God, this means that, I mean, when I say this means, it's not, obviously he didn't write everything about this. I wrote an entire book on the subject, right? But, but, but I, I, began, I had this insight that heterosexuality really is uh, set up from the very beginning as tragic. Well, wouldn't you say that it's only tragic if we accept um, unequal relationships? And but if in the construct of equality, then it's tragic. Absolutely, of course. It's, it's not just equality. I mean, uh, equality is a tricky concept. I, I learned over time. Actually, I learned this primarily from feminist legal theorists who were critical of the notion of equality in the context of laws related to gender. Mm -hmm. uh, but but I'll give you a, a silly example from my own life. In my first marriage, I was before I studied feminist theory. I was a political feminist and. Uh, I didn't grow up that way, of course, as, as you probably know, but I grew up in a very conservative home. But, but by that time, in the 1970s, I had become a political feminist, and so I believed in equality, uh, the equality of men and women. And so I set about, at some point, to take on an equal number of tasks, uh, domestic tasks, in, in our home. It was only much later that I realized that I had chosen the tasks I'd chosen cleaning with a vacuum cleaner, doing the laundry, and of course mowing the yard, that I had chosen all tasks that involved machines. And in that sense, 
were manly tasks, right? Even though some of them we associate with women, you know, as domestic chores and so on, like laundry, but nonetheless, it was something that involved machines. So in anyway, it was my, my idea of equality at that time was ridiculous. You know, I was sincere about it. I really believed in it. I was committed to it, but it was ridiculous. And I think some people would probably say, oh, you weren't really committed to it, which is, I realized later was really the case, actually. Anyway, so it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to think of it in terms of equality, but I think what has to happen is that it's more like that men have to overcome their masculinity training and women have to overcome their femininity training. And the onus, to me at least, clearly should be more on men than on women because uh, men are the ones who, for whom their, their masculinity training gives them more power. But it also, uh, they also should be more motivated because it's, it's training which is very harmful to their lives individually, emotionally, and so on, for example. Like not crying, not being able to express your emotions and feelings and so on. These are all things that are essential to human happiness. So, so men, and in those ways and in many other ways that I describe in, in the Love and War book, masculinity is... Well, I describe it in the book, actually, as masculinity is sacrificial. This is a kind of sacrificial masculinity. So in any case, masculinity is very damaging to men as well as to women. Whereas women, uh, the, the femininity training, let me put it this way. If we were all socialized as women, if we were all subjected to this femininity training, that would be a lot less damaging to us than if we were all trained as, as masculine. Right. I mean, I, I think also because what distinguishes the two is that men are required to subsume their relationship aspects, you know, of their humanity and women are actually encouraged to. So they have right. this lifeline of relationships, whether it's female to female relationships or other kinds of relationships in their lives that they're, that they've built in a network of people that they can rely upon for support. Yes. Um, whereas men, I think, they don't have the skills to know how to, to do that in a way yes. that's self-sustaining and healing. Yes, I think that's uh, a great insight, actually. You know, there's a video. It's too bad that you can't show videos in a podcast. But if, if anybody has not seen the film Undefeated, I highly recommend it. It's a documentary film, and it's about a... Uh, a middle-aged guy who volunteers as coach. He happens to be white. Race matters to some extent in the movie, but it's but the it's not the main thing, as I recall. He volunteers to be the football coach for a team in a predominantly black high school. I believe it's in Memphis. I'm not sure. And at the end of the film, there's this incredible scene where they've gone through so much together, this guy and his football players. I won't say what happens at the end. I'm going to try to avoid a spoiler alert. But in the end, his one of the black players with whom he's developed a really close relationship, and he hug each other after a game, right? So right after a game, I won't say whether they won or lost, but they hug each other. There are. I'm, I'm feeling the emotions right now as I'm imagining that scene. The tears are rolling down their cheeks as they're hugging each other. And uh, that's something that's missing from most men's lives. And, you know, I think it would be presumptuous of me to talk about women's lives the way that you did, right? But I understand what you're saying. And certainly it's, it's the case that masculinity is, uh, is harmful to men's lives in the way that you, know, that you mentioned in your question, yes. Yeah, and I think also that our cultural dialogue doesn't 
allow for men to talk about their relationships with women if there are problems and and to seek advice and guidance around how to be better in their relationships. And so that actually is another sort of um, place where, you know, society creates barriers for men to be able to to be better functioning <laughs> in relationships. Well, on the other hand, when men are struggling with relationships, they tend to go to women, whether it be a mother or a sister or just a female friend with whom they don't have a relationship, right? They go to women to talk about the problems in their relationship. Uh, there have been studies of this, actually, uh, showing that men tend to lack the, the language to talk about relationships and, and issues in relationships and that sort of thing. So typically a man will go to a woman to talk about what's going on in the relationship and she will say, well, how did that make you feel? And he sa- he'll say something like, well, I, I'm not sure exactly. And, and she'll say, well, did it, did it make you uh, angry or sad or, or resentful? Or, and she'll offer some concepts and some, often just words, right, that he can latch on to say, yes, that's it, right? <laughs> I, f- I felt uh, disappointed. That, you're, that's, it. that's it. That's the one, disappointed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so because women are, are brought up perhaps to have this uh, amplified sense of caring about others, but in any case, they have not been, their sense of caring has not been thwarted by, this, by instilling emotional toughness in them the way that it's instilled in boys. So their capability for this has not been damaged the way it has been for, for, for boys. But that means then that boys are, are dependent upon women, and even sometimes in relationships, if they last very long, a man becomes emotionally dependent upon the woman he's in a relationship with. My sense of things is that sometimes when when a relationship comes to an end because and it's the, the end of the relationship is initiated by the woman, they have become dependent upon the woman for emotional support in their lives. And and they're 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 freaked out. People tend to think, oh, it's because they think they won't get sex anymore or something like that, right? And maybe that has something to do with the sex, the the cooking if she if she cooks for them and does all these traditional things and so on. But I, I suspect that it's primarily that they fear losing the emotional support of that woman and they know that it will be uh, difficult or impossible to find it in anyone else because it's something that has grown or they've grown to depend on over time and so on the other thing that i think that happens in that in situations like that where the woman initiates a breakup is that men because men have not been socialized to be emotionally intelligent emotionally adept and so on they're not in touch with the relationship they're not in touch with what's going on and so they tend to be shocked when the time comes, when the woman decides they should end the relationship, it's out of nowhere. Uh, whereas if a man decides to end a relationship, I would guess I, I, you know, that most women sort of saw it coming, you know, and, and saw the problem from a long time, coming from a long time uh, before. Again, other ways in which masculinity damages both men and women, because this results, you know, you see what men... So often what men do when, a, when, when this happens, a relationship comes to an end like that. Right. And in your book, you talk about a term called gender terrorism, which, if I may try to summarize it, is that in a militaristic society, um, heterosexuality, and in particular heterosexism, plays a role in shaping and circumscribing interpersonal relationships, which communicate that heterosexual love is a zero-sum game. And then this 
generates a continuous loop where women or female-gendered individuals are sacrificed and terrorized. So even though that concept is something that you've used to describe interpersonal relationships and, in particular, heterosexual love, that term came um, to my mind in gender terrorism and describing how I felt as a feminist in the post-2016 election days. <laughs> oh, so yes. I'm wondering, can that apply as well in, in that respect? And what are your thoughts about the discourse, cultural discourse change with respect to um, feminism and feminist identity since the election? That's a really interesting connection. Of course, in the book, I, I talk about uh, many other kinds of gender terrorism, but uh, ways in which both men and women, boys and girls, are, are terrorized in a gender uh, with a gender aspect, or the focus is on gender specifically. But in terms of the election, well, I hadn't thought of it specifically in terms of gender terrorism, but I totally see the yeah. Uh, I mean, connection. just just to to clarify, I I you know when when you use the term sacrificing gendered individuals and terrorizing them, for me the sacrifice was the sacrifice of women's hope and equality. Yes. Um, and for being recognized and, and valued, you know, and seen and heard. And so that was a part of like our erasure and, you know, the revisionism that's taken place since then and the denial of the, the role of misogyny, you know, in the election, whatever that may be, yes. that it even played a role. That was probably the most devastating political moment in my life. And there have been a number of devastating political moments in my life. I grew up in a political family. My father ran for political office. He won some and he lost some and so on. And uh, so I'm, I'm used to winning and losing political campaigns. But in 2016, my God, I mean, I had been wanting Hillary Clinton to become president ever since, I guess, probably starting with the Beijing speech, which was 1996, is that right? Something like that? Uh, and uh, it was 92, but you, okay, you might be right. 90, maybe yeah. 92. I, uh -huh. I don't remember the exact date. But, but ever since that Beijing speech, I was so inspired by that. I was just so... Um, and I thought, my God, she's got to become president someday, you know? And, and, and she had everything, even back then, it was clear that she had all the talents, she had all, every, everything needed to become president, I thought, anyway. And I, from that moment forward, I thought she was going to be our first woman president. In 2016, to not only, for her not only to lose, it was one thing for her to lose the primaries against Barack Obama, because that was a more complicated thing for me as someone who grew up in the South and, and, and grew up socialized as a racist and so on in the South, right? And who ultimately became involved in uh, the civil rights movement and, and, and who was an ardent, has been an ardent anti-racist for a long time. I was thrilled by Barack Obama's candidacy and, and by his presidency. But to have in 2016 this ideal candidate almost an ideal candidate in general, an ideal female candidate specifically, more specifically, right, lose to someone who was the most unideal candidate, period, in my, in my lifetime, and I've been, lived a long time, and someone who is such an overt misogynist, not just tacitly sexist and, or something like that, right, 
But like Joe Biden, for example, sometimes, right? I, I love Joe Biden most of the time, but sometimes <laughs> uh, I want to, if I actually talked like Joe Biden, I would say, sometimes I want to punch him, but I don't talk like that. So, <laughs> but, but the guy who, who actually wound up getting the most electoral college votes was uh, by far the most misogynistic person in political life in my lifetime. And, and so that was absolutely devastating. And, and as a feminist in particular, I found it devastating. I view myself as very much on the left politically, I have for decades, right, since at least 1968. And the pervasiveness of cultural militarism in our society tends to go unnoticed a lot of the time. We talk about things like the war on cancer or something like that, or the war on childhood obesity and so on, as if these sorts of concepts made sense, right? They make no sense at all. One of the uh, uh, core elements of cultural militarism, as I've mentioned earlier in, in our discussion, is adversarialism, a tendency to view everything in terms of enemies and uh, fights with enemies and so on, right? We tend to associate cultural militarism with good reason with the Republican Party. That is, most people think of the Republican Party, studies have shown, as the party most likely to go to war and that sort of thing. Now, that's complicated, but nonetheless, that's the, uh, the image the Republican Party has. But in 2016, that adversarialism was also salient, that cultural militarism was also salient in the Democratic primary, and in particular in the primaries. He was often referred to, the, the challenger to Hillary Clinton was often referred to as an insurgent, quote-unquote, candidate, right? That militaristic frame was there from the very beginning. And it's no accident that the emotion that we most closely associate with adversarialism, that is, uh, anger, is often also the, the emotion that we most closely associate with masculinity. We have a masculine culture, right? That masculine culture affects all uh, people, of uh, both men and women, right? So despite the fact that this insurgent candidate uh, self-identified as, as progressive, he was quintessentially an angry white guy. It got to the point where I used to be very fond of him, actually, and very, very much respected him as a Vermont senator. And I would look forward to seeing him on TV and so on. I thought he was kind of cool and everything, you know. But he is the quintessential angry white guy. And that's that's his, his thing. And And as the primaries went on, I began to realize that's all he does. I mean, that by all he does, what I mean is the anger is there all the time. That is what defines him. And... In the, in the primaries, uh, at first I thought, okay, well, this could be interesting. You know, here's a guy who's a socialist. I'm a socialist. And he's competing with Hillary Clinton. And, and yes, I, I sometimes have wished that her political positions were a little bit further to the left than they are about anything, right? Uh, but I understood also that she was running to get elected. She wasn't running to, be, to please people like me, right? Because there aren't enough of us to make somebody president. But I realized fairly quickly that he was not viewing her as a competitor. He was viewing her as an enemy to be vanquished, to be defeated. She was an adversary, right? And so uh, he treated her as an adversary, as someone to fight against, right? And many of his followers took his, his cue, and, and actually, uh, to an even greater extent, went even further than, than he did, uh, trying to destroy Hillary Clinton with lies, distortions, and smears, all enabled by relentless ignorance about her actual life history, about her actual character and personality, about her actual record as a public servant, 
and about her actual uh, proposed policies. So by viewing Hillary Clinton as an enemy, they felt justified in attacking her viciously, more viciously than he did, than the candidate did, but they took their cue from him, the angry white guy, right? And those attacks were uh, often overtly and or, or tacitly misogynistic. For example, when they put down uh, the overwhelming support that uh, Hillary had from black women, they had to, to explain that away by basically, in effect, it seemed to me, putting black women down, saying that black women didn't know, you know, didn't weren't, weren't smart, didn't know enough, weren't educated enough, weren't smart enough, whatever. And if they only knew, you know, the uh, Hillary's. Uh, opponent, quote-unquote, right, well enough, then they would go for him rather than for her. So there was something wrong with them, with those black women, who uh, 94% of whom supported Hillary Clinton. So, so the attacks wound up being not just misogynistic, but also uh, racist, as far as I'm concerned. And, and then you had this stuff about identity politics and so on, uh, putting down uh, any concerns about that the concerns of feminists and anti-racists as identity politics and so on. Basically, these these attacks then targeted anyone who supported Hillary Clinton, uh, such as you, such as me, and and I saw it on Facebook. Uh, believe me, I uh, by that time I had uh, some oh, I think over two thousand uh, uh, Facebook friends, and there was this this turn, especially among my academic friends who weren't so, as committed to feminism. Many and and my field of philosophy is eighty five percent male, uh, and a lot of my Facebook friends at that time were were uh, philosophers, right? So there was a, a definite shift, a definite turn, and it was a turn uh, toward... Uh, philosophers can be very adversarial anyway. They tend to be very argumentative, they're very oriented towards debate and so on, but there was this turn toward a kind of vicious adversarialism among my philosopher friends, and it was vicious toward Hillary Clinton, and it was vicious toward anyone who supported Hillary Clinton. So as you no doubt are aware, Terry, the, a lot of, uh, and not just in academia, but a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters kind of went underground, you know, yeah, on that's, Facebook. That's why um, Pantsu Nation was created. Absolutely. And, and about probably 20 other uh, groups on Facebook that, I'm, that I wound up joining, you know, because uh, you wanted to be able to, to talk, but, you, but the, you, the things you wanted to say uh, that were positive about Hillary— or that would raise questions about uh, her competitor for the nomination, uh, like example, uh, for example, asking about his tax returns or something like that. Where were his tax returns? It would be a, this deluge of of viciousness and and so on. One guy at one point said uh, on Twitter actually in a little Twitter exchange, "Oh, Hillary's such a liar. I could never vote for a liar." That blew me away. And this was a guy who has published a number of philosophy books, was, has a, had a distinguished career as a, as a philosopher. And I had another friend who said that, you know, that, that uh, he was going to vote for, in the, general, in the general election, he was going to vote for Jill Stein because he hated Hillary so much. And again, this is a guy who is at an elite university, Ivy League university, someone who's published a lot of books, very highly respected, obviously a very smart guy and so on. The, uh, the anti-Hillary venom was just really quite remarkable. The idea that it might have nothing to do with misogyny, to me, is absurd. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it drew a lot of parallels. I'm glad you mentioned the, the racism part about the black women, you know, sort of minimizing the analogy and the example you gave, because historically, when black people have been targeted for lynchings or, you know, other things. It's, right. it's the people who stand out who are successful, 
who are targets. And it, and it made me feel like what a risk it is to try to break that glass ceiling or to you know, break any kind of ceiling of power, of entrenched power. And so those right. were the parallels that I saw that you know, I thought were so obvious, but people who maybe you know, experienced other forms of abuse of power didn't recognize. And, and that to me is always the most puzzling because you would think that if you are being victimized in this one way, you could see how other people are being victimized in the same way using the same tactics. That's a really great point, actually. Often lynching was about the lynching of, of blacks who own stores, who own property, uh, and so on, right? It was a way of, of stealing from them and terrorizing other blacks from doing the same things, from trying to achieve power and so on, or, or, or political office uh, during the uh, Jim Crow period and so on. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really great point. I guess you know, well, in any case, it was it was very disconcerting for me because I'm used to people on the left, at least, saying that they are advocates of feminism. Very few philosophers would say, "Oh no, I'm against feminism." Can uh, you for example. describe what you mean by feminism as you and your peers in philosophy define it? Oh well, just something, so we're clear. Like, something like liberal feminism—the notion that uh, a very limited, very constricted sort of notion of feminism that involves political rights—and very few philosophers are familiar with fem- feminist theory and how the extent to which gender affects all of our mm-hmm. our thoughts and, and and so on and and all of our feelings and everything about our lives. There's other parts of your book that I found were also very relevant to a lot of the events that have taken place since the election that have been very prominent in the news. And one of them is the way gun violence has played out in the media. And for me, historically, always been characterized as more about the symptoms than about the root causes. And I know that you in your social media presence are very active in, in drawing out those root causes. So can you talk about that a little bit? It seems to me that... Um Prior to the recent, let's see, when was Columbine? Uh, it was um, 20 years ago. About 20 years ago, right. So prior to about 20 years ago, that's what I was thinking. I, I was thinking 1997, actually. And so anyway, it was approximately 20 years ago. And prior to that time, the, the way that we socialize boys, at least in retrospect, it looks this way to me, that the way that we socialize uh, boys to be warriors, uh, to try to uh, aspire to that warrior ideal, in terms of emotional toughness, in terms of aggressiveness and, and the use of violence to solve problems and, and so on, would have been a recipe for mass murder if they had had access to assault rifles and so on, right? The kinds of uh, weapons and not just assault rifles, but huge magazines uh, for for uh, handguns, that, that uh, automatic, uh, semi-automatic handguns and so on. So what seems to have changed, and I don't recall exactly the year in which the assault rifle ban was ended. It seems like maybe it was 94 or something like that. So it was uh, shortly after that that the the mass murder started taking off, basically, in our society uh, as a phenomenon. And it seems to get worse uh, every year. Uh, So... So I don't think, so I mean, the, the cultural programming of boys uh, has not in and of itself changed that much. But one thing that has changed, in addition to the availability of military-style weaponry to boys, to teenage boys, right, 
And, and to men, too, because some of these, I mean, like the Las Vegas shooter was, I think, in his 50s or something, right? So another thing that's changed in, in addition to that availability of, of military-style weaponry is a, a growing insecurity about masculinity among uh, boys and men. As you have more and more women moving into positions of power and authority. You have more women who now are still, it's a tiny fraction of the total, but you have more women who are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and, and so on than you had uh, 20 years ago. So as more and more women are moving into positions of power, uh, I think about half of the graduates of, of law schools uh, have been women for about uh, maybe even over 20 years now. Uh, so... As you see this happening, a women achieving greater equality in the workforce, that means that a lot of the symbolic content of masculinity is dissipating. Men used to grow up thinking that they were going to have certain kind of uh, jobs and positions and so on that were not available to women. They were exclusively male. So those jobs, those positions in society, uh, were those occupations and so on, were part of masculinity. And that's increasingly not the case. And increasingly men are becoming aware that women generally have reached a point where they are really fed up with how they were treated in the past uh, under thoroughgoing patriarchy. And they are just not going to take this anymore. They're, they're, they're done with this. And that's threatening to men because it threatens, it threatens their ability to attain masculinity. Again, as, as, as we discussed earlier in this interview, masculinity is more than anything else, unfemininity. It's, it's not being a woman, not being a girl, and so on. So if, if those lines of the gender binary are becoming blurred, even with respect to just social positionality and so on, then that's a threat to masculinity. That's a threat to and so for, for both uh, boys and for men. In order to... to to assert their masculinity, one way to do that is to grab a gun and kill people, to, to act like the ultimate warrior. To take, and, and it's not, no coincidence that they not only, not only often use assault uh, weapons, mil military weapons, but they also often put on military uh, garb, uh, camo, camo gear, uh, camo clothing, and that sort of thing, right? So a certain number of boys and men are going to, to uh, engage in, in that kind of behavior. And you're going to have more who are going to engage in increasing levels of misogyny in other contexts. And isn't that also related, as you referenced, being anti-female? So if boys, cisgendered or not, manifest their identity in marginalized ways of being a man, like quote unquote acting feminine or um, being sensitive or you know whatever, and also obviously th those in the homosexual community, then right. that targets them for ridicule and you know being ostracized by the patriarchy. Yeah, um, I mean, gay men have always been subjected to harassment and even death, uh, being killed as a result of, uh, in part, be, being gay at all, right? But in part, a lot of straight men were especially offended by behavior that seemed, uh, seemed effeminate, as, as they would uh, put it. And I think most bo young boys now are being brought up uh, to be more sensitive than they were in the past. Uh, in, in most families, even conservative families, I think even conservative families realize to some extent, implicitly, 
that masculinity is harming their boys. And so uh, their mothers especially maybe are, are bringing their boys up to be a little bit more sensitive and a little bit more, quote, respectful of women and, and that sort of thing, right? Respectful of girls' boundaries and, you know, they use language like that and so on. But then that, you know, again, makes them more confused about masculinity and the thing is, masculinity, uh, I recently gave a talk at, uh, at the University of Iceland called The Instability of Masculinity. And for that talk, I began to realize as I was preparing it, building on the intuitions that led me to announce that as the topic, that uh, masculinity has always been unstable. It's always been unstable. It's, it's something that a man can never attain perfectly. The uh, Fox tribe of Native Americans in Iowa uh, called it the big impossible Right, because it could never—it's a never a settled matter. So men are constantly being evaluated uh, regarding their masculinity. In the book, I, I, I talk about—I think I talk in the book about a uh, masculinity quotient. And in my talk, I was—I I referred to the idea of a masculinity gauge that uh, every man seems to have over his shoulder, and he's constantly his masculinity quotient is always being evaluated by uh, by other men, by women, by everyone, really, by children and so on. And so that, that then tends to make a man a kind of implicit awareness of that. Usually it's not explicit, but an implicit awareness of that makes men even more insecure, knowing that their, their masculinity is never a settled matter. And with the sorts of things, uh, you know, the way our society is changing in terms of the role of women and in terms of the way that boys are brought up, increasingly boys are going to be engaging in behavior that is uh, not so masculine you know, traditionally. And as a result, uh, they're going to be bullied sometimes. They're going to be, sometimes their fathers may uh, be offended by something that, by behavioral traits that they attribute to the mothering that they got from their mother and so on. So boys are more confused and, and there's, some of them are going to react in horrifically negative ways and resentful ways and so on. So the, the, the kind of porn that... Uh, college uh, students or college boys are attracted to these days. It's something I discuss in the book uh, that Gail Dines ca calls gonzo porn is horrendously misogynistic, unbelievably misogynistic. When a friend read the uh, the draft of, of that chapter, chapter three of, of the Love and War book, she said, you should have warned me, Tom. Uh, afterwards, I needed to go for a walk or take a shower. It was just... It's so appalling, so disgusting, just so reprehensible, just really, words, words don't really, I, I don't know of words to capture the, uh, the, the way, the, the misogyny that's, it, that's operative in that kind of pornography. And it's no accident that uh, college men, I'm told, sit around together and watch, often watch this kind of pornography in groups as kind of, you know, kind of daring each other to object or to to react critically to it or something like that. It's like part of male bonding, and, and it's male bonding around misogyny. Yeah, yeah, and even as you just mentioned, the, the um, labeling of men and boys who have close relationships with their mothers, you know, that's discouraged and, and you know, marginalized, even though it's something that, hope, you know, in theory could be 
very healthy for them in developing you know, useful skills. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If a boy's going to learn emotional intelligence, uh, it's more likely to be from his mother than from his father. Again, these, things, these are just patterns. I want to emphasize that. You know, These are just patterns. There have always been fathers who are emotionally intelligent and sensitive and caring and uh, nurturing and, and so on. And there have always been mothers who were really uh, terrible at being mothers, right? Who were, were so emotionally tough themselves because of their own upbringing that they were they didn't have all these qualities. So these are just patterns we're talking about, not generalizations. I, I, mm-hmm. I can't emphasize that strongly enough. So I want to read to you this brilliant Twitter thread that went viral last year. It was, I think it illustrates some of the concepts in the last several chapters of your book very well. The writer of the Twitter thread was a female who worked as a clown and described her interaction with a boy who wanted a butterfly painted on his cheek. Did you read about this? I didn't. Okay, so somehow so, I missed that. So I'm going to read this to you. I'm guessing that I've missed most of the important <laughs> things uh, on, on Twitter, but I try. But. So here we go. This is the, um, the user. Hey, everyone, I'm a clown, and I just got back from face painting at a picnic, and here's my take on male violence in America. It starts young, and it's more than just letting boys play with guns. It's how we shame them for feeling anything that isn't anger. A four-year-old boy asked me to paint a blue butterfly on his face. Then his mom told me, no, he doesn't want that. Butterflies are beautiful, he said. That's what he wants. Shouldn't I paint what he wants? No, give him something for boys. She turns to dad, a big guy in a jersey, and says accusingly, do you want your son to have a butterfly on his face? He says, no. Which, cool, let's bring your husband's masculinity into it too, because your four-year-old needs to know that his father would be ashamed too. I really tried, you guys, but this woman was so scared of her son wanting a butterfly, she made me paint a skull and crossbones on his cheek. When I finished the skull, I said to kiddo, you want a little blue butterfly too, don't you? He nods. Mom interrupts. You didn't ask me. I say in my kindest fuck you voice, oh, I'm sorry. I thought this was for him. I'm his mother. You need to ask me, she says. Sorry, I say and wave goodbye to the kid. And I am. I'm sorry that he's not allowed to love something as miraculous and beautiful as a butterfly. I'm sorry that he was ashamed for wanting to share in the joy that is the miracle and wonder of nature. I see this all the time, and I really feel for these boys because the girls don't get it as bad. Being a tomboy is slightly more normalized. And when girls want skulls or sharks, the parents shrug and laugh Like, haha, she's a kooky kid because maleness and masculinity isn't a sin. But when a boy wants to enjoy something for its beauty, they are told it's not for them, not in this house, not in this family. We are teaching them that anger and violence are the only things they are allowed to experience, that to value beauty and elegance is shameful. I know this is just face paint, but that's sort of my point. Why in the hell are these parents shaming their boys over face paint? Honestly, don't even get me started on the balloons. So the next time you are incredulous about how the government could shut down our national parks or build a pipeline or nuke the planet, think about what this four-year-old boy asked for, a butterfly, and what he got, crossbones. Epilogue, the mom complained to my boss. So this story made me think about 
what you described in the degendering of war and the demilitarization demil- of gender as possible solutions to what we can do. So can you address <laughs> this story? Wow. Parenting in militaristic cultures can be really harsh. And the more the cultural militarism infuses the life of a family, the more that parenting is going to be harsh, even cruel to kids. Because to me, that was an example of cruelty to children. That was cruelty. You know, we know that how cruel, I mean, anybody who's seen the uh, the movie 300 about the uh, Spartans uh, uh, knows, or if you've ever studied the Spartans, you know how cruel parenting could be among the Spartans. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that persists in, in, in our society, and it's incredibly sad. And it does have all those implications that, that she described in that Twitter thread. And it's how we wound up with, I don't want to say for sure, I would need to go back and study you know, the history of the presidents to be sure about this, but certainly we wound up with the cruelest president in my lifetime. Donald Trump is an extraordinarily cruel person. Extraordinarily cruel. He's cruel to individual persons. He's probably been cruel to his own children, the way that that uh, mother was and then father were to, to their son. And he's extraordinarily cruel in terms of his policies. And not just like ripping children out of the arms of their parents uh, who, who are uh, seeking asylum. Fall. I mean, I have all the reprehensible things to do. People who are desperate for safety and it's just extraordinarily cruel to do that sort of thing to families. But also he's uh, being, uh, all of his policies are cruel. He's being cruel to people by, through his environmental policies. Uh, Scott Pruitt is undoing all the protections of the environment of the Obama administration relentlessly undoing all of those things that would make the, uh, the, the environment safe for all of us. And that is a cruelty that is extended to every single person in our society. He's being cruel to uh, white people who are not privileged in our society. The list could go on, you know, but his, the, his cruelty is just... If somebody had written a fiction, you know, written a novel about a president this cruel... Uh, it would never have gotten published. Nobody would have believed it. That it would be possible in this country uh, that that could happen. And like most cruel persons, he seeks absolute power over anyone he views as opposing him. That cultural militarism, that adversarialism that's part of cultural militarism is at the core of his being. So to my point about degendering the military, is that part of the solution? Or do we need to rethink the military altogether? You know, so having diversity and accepting, you know, LGBTQ and trans individuals in the military and diversifying, you know, the military and other cultural and political organizations, is that, it's necessary, but is it sufficient? Well, there have to be a whole bunch of things coming together. And one of them is degendering the military. But if, if if you simply were to change the military so that uh, there were an equal number of women and men in the military or something like that, uh, and so that women had equal opportunity in the military and so on, uh, that in and of itself 
would only mean that uh, without any other cultural changes, without any other uh, changes in our society, would simply mean that we would become a more thoroughgoing militaristic society, presumably. It would mean that girls would be brought up if women were expected to serve in the military to the extent that boys are and so on. Like if we had a draft, a universal draft, so that uh, every child growing up was expected to serve in the military. Then we might very well wind up with an even more militaristic society than we have now, where every child grows up to become a warrior. not just so that the girls would not grow up just to produce more warriors, but as they have been in most militaristic societies, but everybody is expected to be a warrior. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that's actually what's going to happen. It's more complicated than that. And to the extent that uh, the military, put it this way, to the extent that the military is gradually less defined as quintessentially masculine, then it becomes a less important part of the cultural programming of masculinity. If we view uh, serving in the military as something that women and men both do, then its power to instill masculine values, uh, masculine militaristic values in boys is going to be greatly diminished. This is one of the reasons, I think, why boys are, or it's related to an explanation for why uh, boys are, are sometimes uh, seen as less motivated in uh, in their studies, and, and both in uh, th- uh, high school and also in college, and why uh, boys sometimes seem less ambitious, less motivated, and so on. It used to be that being a playing the provider role in a family was an exclusively was viewed, at least by privilege in privileged uh, middle class and, and higher homes, as an exclusively masculine uh, pursuit. And so boys grew up you know, understanding their masculinity required doing those things. So no longer is that uh, the case in most families. To a certain extent it is, but it's a, little, to a much, it's, it's a much less significant thing now that, that men are expected to play the provider role. So that's less a part of masculinity uh, and less plays a less smaller role in, in uh, culturally programming boys. And to the extent that the, the military changes then that will be less significant in terms of the using that to that warrior ideal to culturally program boys and the third the third uh, leg of the three legged stool of masculinity would be uh, procreation and to the extent that we I think this has been the case for some time, that most people think there are too many people in the world. There's not that much emphasis on procreation anymore. And that that role of boys of of producing a maximum number of offspring, that's gone away. So those three things, the provider role, the the warrior role, and the uh, procreative role, those are all, you know, three pillars of masculinity that are going away. Another thing that's relevant here is the fact that uh, increasingly our military is becoming automated so that robots and drones and so on are doing the uh, uh, some of the most brutal things that can be done, especially drones. Drones are doing horrendously brutal things to even civilian populations and so on, actual war crimes. And these drones often are, are uh, as I understand it, are operated by people at, a, at such a distance. They're in Nevada or, or uh, Arizona or somewhere, and just doing all this on a computer screen and so on. Uh, so, and, incre- and increasingly, ultimately, the, uh, the drones and the robots and so on will be, uh, artificial intelligence will be developed to the extent where they can operate completely autonomously, make autonomous decisions and so on. Well, this obviously raises a whole lot of 
issues and problems and so on tremendously. But it also means a, a drone or a robot doesn't need to be culturally programmed to be able to manage the capacity to care about the suffering of others and of itself. It just doesn't have any caring for others or itself. You might try to program that into it, but that would be a, a challenge, I would think, to be, try to program a computer to, be, to have empathy. So in any case, even if you could, you could turn it off you know, with a, uh, very easily. So, so the ultimate warrior might very well be a robotic warrior, in which case we wouldn't need little boys to grow up to play that role or little girls to grow up to play that role. And so that's another you know, hope for the future, I guess, uh, in this regards. And when you were responding to this face painting story uh, with regard to the militarization of gender and, you know, how parenting can play a role, what about our cultural institutions? What, what can we do culturally to demilitarize gender? Well, you know, this is not what I thought I would learn when I set out to write the Love and War book. But in the end, I realized... When I, I, I gave a, uh, a talk at the University of New Hampshire to the philosophy uh, department at the University of New Hampshire, I guess it's called a seminar or something, you know, but colloquium. But I believe the first question that was that I was asked after I gave my talk uh, was, and it was by a male faculty member, uh, which is probably a coincidence, but and uh, the question was something like how would you advise us to raise our boys so they don't grow up to be that way? Do they don't grow up to be misogynistic and violent and so on, right? To have all of these qualities. And I did a double take. I've never had children engaged in childcare. I know nothing about this, right? I've never read any books about uh, bringing up children and so on. And here I was all of a sudden, me of all people, being asked for child rearing advice, you know, it seemed it was kind of funny in a way. But since then, other people have asked me those questions after lectures. So even though I certainly don't claim in my lecture to know anything about the subject, but so I have thought about it more, and that's why I say I, to my. I think my my answer to your question is to a large extent that you start out changing a culture probably. Uh, one of the most powerful ways you can change a culture is by changing the way that you bring up the children, boys and girls. It's underestimated, probably. There are lots of ways we can change a culture. We can do it with movies, with documentary films, with uh, podcasts, with with uh, uh, books like my book and so on, uh, my, my books and, and so on. There are lots of ways you can change a culture. But ultimately, the pivotal one, I guess, really, is how we bring children up so that they don't uh, grow up that that way. You know, we, we need to wake parents up to how what's happening to their children. Those parents in the face painting story, right, they need to learn, you know, what they're setting that boy up for. And it's not good. Not good for the child. It's not good for them. And to get back to, your, to the focus of your question, it's not good for our culture, right? So parenting is, is a, I've come to realize, is an important form of activism that I'll never be a part of, but nonetheless, except perhaps uh, remotely <laughs> through my book and, and lectures and that sort of thing. And, and that would make me happy if it turned out that I were doing some remote child rearing in this way, you know, and, and changing the culture in that way. Yeah. And when I asked you that question, I was actually thinking about yesterday, I think it was yesterday, this weekend, there was a 
tweet that went, I think it's gone viral uh, about J. Crew because they came out with an ad of a boy. He looks like he's maybe six years old, five or six, and he's wearing a shirt. And I think, I don't remember exactly what it says, but it's something akin to feminism is for me. Uh, and it got a yeah. lot of negative responses, you know, towards sure. J. Crew. And I had retweeted that in a positive way, applauding J. Crew for being, right. you know, a part of the solution to, in my view, the solution is to raise boys and girls as feminists, yeah. you know, and that it provides a solution for being also anti-racist and anti-oppression in all its forms. And, right. and, and so when companies do that, creating a dialogue, I think, about why they do that and, and why it's important, Absolutely. you know, is really helpful and being supportive of companies, you know, so that they don't, they're not negatively impacted. Absolutely. You know, one of the main motivations behind my Love and War book is to help men see that feminism is for them. You know, uh, that it really is, that, that they need it. You know, they desperately need it. Oh, about a year ago, I think, maybe two years ago, I was giving a talk at my alma mater, William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. Uh, traditionally, was very conservative. But I was giving a talk there uh, uh, after my book was published. The fraternity that, that I'd been a member of uh, required all of their members to come to my lecture. And during the Q&A, one of the members of, of my fraternity said, well, I'm confused, you know, why, why should uh, men support feminism? Because feminism is, is against men, you know, it hurts men. And I gave a little bit of an, more of an explanation. And then I said, look, if you want to live your life as a straight man, right, heterosexual man, and you want to have fulfilling, happy relationships you damn well better become a really committed feminist because that's your only hope. And I repeated it about two or three times. You know, if you want to live life as a heterosexual man, you damn well become, better become a really strong feminist because that's your only hope. And I really believe that. There aren't many things that I believe on, you know, uh, uh, as strongly as that, actually. But, but that really is the case. And I speak as someone who knows from his own experience, you know, uh, that how feminism has affected my life. And it's by far been the best thing that's ever happened to me. So as we come to the end of our conversation, I'd like to share with you an engendered questionnaire that I've created in the spirit of James Lipton's Inside the Actors Studio. <laughs> the first question is, what is at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression. Oh, wow. Uh, and I assume you want a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> that would be helpful. The short answer would be, read my book. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Okay. What gives you hope? Oh, hope is hard, much harder to find now than, uh, uh, than it was before uh, November uh, 9th, 2016. But... My hope is that that election did wake a lot of people up, a lot of people up. And so going forward, when you look at the number of women who are running for political office, for example, I don't have the numbers ready to hand, but I, I've seen some of them, and they're pretty uh, impressive, actually. So that's what gives me hope, is that uh, I, I often, when bad things happen uh, in the political realm, I try to reassure myself by thinking dialectically. Yeah, I mean, 
I think that the the sheer awfulness of what is happening uh, has been happening since uh, the 2016 election is going to uh, make a big difference uh, going forward. And it may be that uh, we'll have, well, yeah, I think it'll make a big difference going forward. And that's, 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 that's my hope is that uh, this history will be dialectical in this case, in that, in that sense. Okay. And our final question, you don't have to answer all parts, but you're welcome to. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop? And this is addressed to our listeners. What can they do? You know, I've been asked questions like that so many times over the years that I, I was teaching university and college courses uh, in that setting. You know, my, my, my classes tended to be very inspiring and energizing and, and often entertaining. And, and students would say then, well, what can I do? And my response has almost always been the same, that you have to decide that, that we all do something different. You know, we all, we all have different opportunities. We all have different uh, dispositions, different abilities, and so on. So we all have to find out for ourselves. And it's not necessarily easy to do that. But I don't recommend the, the, uh, the route that I took, the academic route, for very complicated reasons. But find things that you can do. And the most important thing, and this is what I've always told my students, the most important thing is to be trying your damnedest to change the world for the better. Uh, as long as you're committed to that and you're committing your, your life to, to making those kinds of changes in the world, then that's going to be satisfying in and of itself, regardless of whether you succeed or not, uh, and regardless of the extent to which you, you, you succeed. Just the very fact of trying, because caring, one of the things I learned in my, uh, I sometimes refer to as my gynocentric feminist period, uh, is that caring and empathy and compassion and those sorts of things that that, that uh, women in this society tend to be programmed to be much better better at, or, or let me say that they're less disabled at doing than men are disabled at doing by their cultural programming. Those things are rewarding in and of themselves. And I think a lot of men, because they, they've been disabled in this regard, emotionally disabled by having those things thwarted in, by their cultural programming in themselves, that they're they're kind of surprised to realize that they can be they can achieve a certain amount of happiness just by trying to make a difference in the world or trying to make a difference in individual people's lives, you know, being caring towards the world in general and towards other people in particular and so on. All those things are their own reward. So that's that would be my long way of avoiding your question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Tom, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Likewise, Terry. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap can be found at kanduit.com. Can do it. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you. Thank you.